I think we're going through a quote-unquote fourth turning. So a time period where we're examining our, our existing institutions, we're, we're decreasing levels of trust in whether it's governments, whether it's media, whether it's corporations, basically the, the things that have been built over the past 50, 100 years and wanted to build new institutions. And that transition is always very messy. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. From the people behind sportsbet.io, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino and is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences and that money can't buy. BitCasino has 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O, and please gamble responsibly. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for the future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides you the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee and no foreign transaction fees. And you can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever. And you know what? You can also earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. If you would like to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it is Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin doesn't have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy for you. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it's just a click or phone call away. Casa has the best in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Take your financial freedom into your own hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, we have Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus. With a larger screen, it makes it much easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger user since 2017, and I absolutely love the S+. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you'd like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Lynn, hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, good. Sad to have missed out on coming to Norway with you and the rest of the Bitcoiners. It was a nice trip. Yeah, it's the first one I've missed for a, for a few years. Uh, had some other things I had to get on with in London. Uh, what did I miss? Tell me what I missed. Well, I mean, I, so most of the most of the uh, conference focused on human rights. So it's oh. not a Bitcoin thing. It's mainly a human rights thing. Uh, but they're increasingly recognizing 
Bitcoin as a tool that can be used just like any other tool. So for example, VPNs can be used if you want to, uh, you know, receive and transmit information in a hostile network environment. And Bitcoin can be used to, you know, receive and transmit value in a hostile financial environment. Uh, and so they've been increasingly using that, uh, especially Alex Gladstein. And so they had a number of panels there where they're interviewing people from Africa, from Venezuela, from a, from you know a bunch of regions around the world where they've had their bank accounts frozen, they've had high inflation, and just uh, how people are using that as a tool. And then they also had panels on uh, based on lightning and energy to discuss you know some of the other aspects, that maybe not directly tied into human rights, but that are you know involved in either scaling it to people or about the costs of, you know, having this te technology exist. And did it have a profound impact on you going and seeing and hearing these talks? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, it, especially when you when you compare it to the, the World Economic Forum that was going on, that's where a lot of the alt corners are going. The Bitcoin and, and stablecoin people were kind of at the, at the Oslo Forum. And, you know, basically it's like, one is like real world tools and, and you know, things like that. One's more about kind of Wall Street-like. Right, so it's utility versus more investing in speculation. So I like, I think that's the most important angle of the whole thing. That's that's kind of going back to the roots of why Satoshi made this whole thing. Mm -hmm. He didn't talk about, hey guys, we're all going to get rich. He's like, here's like this private peer-to-peer -peer type of money, right? And so this goes back to those roots. So a big shout out to Alex Gladstein for everything he's done there. I know yeah. you're a massive fan of the Human Rights Foundation. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've always found it's a really good grounding exercise because. I mean, we're about to talk about the macroeconomic environment, and I know that's a lot of your work is focused on on that side of things, and we discuss price, and when Bitcoin's going up, everyone's happy, and when it's going down, people aren't so happy. But there is this whole other utility side where you realize this is a essential tool for people outside of whatever the price of Bitcoin is. Yeah, at the end of the day, what we're watching is this, this network monetizing over time, and you know, if you look at the the chain analysis crypto adoption index, it's Bitcoin, but it's all you know, stable coins, it's all a crypto. Nineteen out of their top twenty countries are developing countries, and the one out, the one outlier is the United States because mm -hmm. we're weird. But you know, so it's it's basically it's not surprising that places where you either have arbitrary bank freezes or persistent inflation problems, they're more likely to use these alternative monies and these peer to peer cryptographic monies. Uh, and you know, it's, it's one of those things. Some of them use Bitcoin, some of them use stable coins. But then there's also a lot of scams in the whole space too. So it's it's why you know education is still important. But basically, it's you know this goes back to the roots of why this technology was invented in the first place. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that you said Bitcoin and stable coins. This is something Alex talks about a lot. He talks about the fact that in certain jurisdictions, stable coins are super important when people are struggling with economic difficulty. Bitcoin isn't always the greatest tool for them because. The price is volatile. Uh, so in certain jurisdictions, I think he's mentioned Palestine to me specifically. Um, maybe even Turkey recently, he said, there's a lot of popularity with regards to stable coins. For me, it gets into this kind of weird place whereby I'm a Bitcoiner, but I absolutely support and agree with everything Alex says about stable coins. But then I have to square this circle around uh, the protocols which they tend to live on, which tends to be shitcoin protocols, which we can all be very critical of. You've done some great studies on Ethereum and potential issues with scaling that as a platform. But at the same time, it is if that is a tool that is becoming a tool for human rights and freedom, I'm kind of conflicted between criticizing these platforms and saying shitcoin all the time when recognizing they are actually helping people. Do you, do you understand the conflict I have? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there, there are people making use of stablecoins, right? So 
one of the big markets is just crypto trading, right? So that that's that's you know that's that's where a lot of the Ethereum ones are used. Uh, the ones that go on Tron are optimizing for lower fees, and they're the ones that a lot of people in developing countries are actually using as dollars. They're using them for savings, things like that. Now, as you point out, there's a lot of problems with the underlying foundation that they're on. But the whole point of a stablecoin is so so Bitcoin's the most decentralized. It's the it's the one that's globally decentralized. Whereas what a stablecoin's basically doing is saying, okay, so it's centralized, but the central hub is outside of the country that is confiscating your dollars and is having a currency crisis. And so if you're say Nigerian uh, and you hold tethers or something like that, they would you know perceive that as safer than if they you know try to store dollars in the local bank. There's a, there's a precedent of countries like Lebanon and Argentina. And they have currency crisis, they say, oh, you have dollars in the bank, we're going to go ahead and convert them to local currency at the exchange rate we pick. Uh, and so any attempts to protect yourself from that inflation just fails. Uh, and so they'd rather have this kind of peer-to-peer version with the central hub outside of the country. Now, of course, they have to rely on that hub, they have to rely on that protocol. And so it's not an ideal long-term solution, but it's obviously an important bridging tool for the environment that we're in right now, because a lot of people, they, they just... You know, if you make $400 a month and you have $400 expenses a month, you can't risk volatility for that, right? And especially if you're trying to save for a three-month, six-month, 12-month period, you know, being 100% in Bitcoin is challenging. And that's where stable coins can, can be useful for them. And so it's serving a purpose. And then there's all sorts of technologies like Taro and things like that could have, that could eventually bring them back to Bitcoin and Lightning. I mean, they, they originated on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. They moved out to where, you know, just market activity made it cheaper. Maybe they'll come back. So we'll see what happens over time. Yeah, it's fascinating that Tron has this become this technology that's been super useful uh, for people in these jurisdictions. Um, okay, so it's been really fun the last few months uh, attacking specific subjects with you and getting into like the weeds on specific subjects. This show has been super popular, but I have had people coming back saying, can you get Lynn to do an update on the macro environment? It's getting a little bit scary out there, so talk you through with Danny and that's really what we want to do with you. It's, uh, uh, I feel like everything is happening, as you said, uh, inflation has continued to rise, but there's lots of weird and other things going on. And I know you study this day to day. Um, so I kind of really want to get a bit of an update from you. Uh, a starting point really is just more of a general overview. It's like, what the hell's going on, Lynn? <laughs> like, what is going on? Well, so essentially we're having an inflationary crisis. Uh, and it's hitting developed markets for the first time in decades. I mean, uh, developing countries go through this regularly, at least many of them do. And now it's hitting developed countries across the board, some harder than others, especially Europe, uh, less so Japan, but really across the board. And because that's mainly because commodities are a global market, and that, that's a big driver of what's causing this as well as supply chains. And, you know, whereas last year we were in this pure inflationary phase, now we're kind of in the central bank counterattack phase where, you know, they kept saying it was transitory. They kept saying, don't worry about it. This will be, you know, there's base effects and things like that. And some of the base effects were real, but but they were basically, they were sugarcoating the type of inflation that we were actually getting and probably about to get. And because they weren't acknowledging how much new currency supply was created in a short period of time compared to real world constraints around commodities and, and logistics and things like that. Um, and so, now we have we've added a Russian war to the mix, right? So that further makes it challenging to, you know, optimize commodities where they need to be, and then we also have very draconian Chinese lockdowns. Um, you know, very large percentage of the population, and that's the manufacturing uh, hub of the world uh, and the shipping hub of the world. 
And so that kind of gums up the supply chain problems. And so we both have limitations in the real world side while also having a lot of currency having been created. Uh, and so now we're seeing the inflation roll through the system. Uh, and it, it's, it's particularly getting bad in Europe, but it's bad you know, throughout the world at this point. And so now central banks have their credibility threatened, where they said it was transitory. It's far higher and less transitory than they, than they kind of sold the idea would be. And so now they're in the phase where they're, they're trying to tighten policy. But the whole point is that unlike, say, the 70s, there's so much debt in the system that trying to tighten policy is kind of this temporary thing where they want to act like they can stabilize this whole thing. We can get back to positive real rates. We can totally normalize this. But the problem is that the only way for the central bank to push back on inflation is to reduce demand. They can't print oil. They can't print copper. They can't print ships. Uh, they can't you know, just magically create new pipelines and, and get all that stuff where it needs to be. Uh, and so they say, okay, there's a supply side constraint we have high inflation. If we reduce demand, we can take the edge off prices. But what is a reduction in demand? It's a recession, right? And so right now, inflation is very politically unpopular. But you can bet that if you were to reduce demand and increase unemployment, you'd have different types of things that are unpopular, right? That would also be unpopular. And I think that at the, at the very core of it, there, there's two main problems. One is we've underinvested in energy. In, in multiple ways for several years. Uh, and so there's just not enough energy and it doesn't get easily to where it needs to go. So that's number one. And that's very different than the past decade where we spent a large portion of the time with an energy oversupply because we brought in a lot of new types of oil to market, particularly shale. And we also had a slowdown in emerging markets. So, so you know, demand was less than, than anticipated and supply was more than anticipated. So we had this glut of oil for a period of time. Uh, and that really destabilized prices, brought them low. Uh, that was good for some industries, obviously bad for the, the producers. Uh, but now, uh, due to the combination of nobody wanting to invest in that because of the prices were so low and because of ESG concerns and things like that, there's been underinvestment. And we've kind of, te- we've kind of drawn forward a lot of the benefits we got from shale, right? So that, that rapid increase in shale can't just keep continuing the way it was, right? There's only so much shale oil that's available. It is very fast decline rates, requires constant capital injection. So now we're in this phase where we don't really have enough energy. Uh, and it also doesn't get to where it needs to be. Uh, and so that's just a constraint. And it, that takes time to work through. That The market forces have to work through that and find new energy to bring the market, different types of energy. And of course, the other one is the whole supply chain. So for the past 10, 20, 25, 30 years, we've had this period of persistent globalization where uh, you know, we're, we're finding these big pockets of labor throughout the world that were previously relatively unused uh, in, in the global market sense and optimizing that or geographic arbitrage where you say, okay, so instead of having this expensive factory in, you know, uh, Detroit, we'll go ahead and move it to China, right? And so you, you arbitrage that labor cost difference. And we, we've had that pressure for, you know, really for 25 years now, especially the, the Chinese part of it. And, you know, in some ways it's been a longer than that, but really that past 20, 25 year period has been very aggressive in terms of how much globalization's happened. And that's been a very disinflationary force. And so the concern is that as that kind of levels out, and then, you know, even if it, even if it just doesn't deglobalize, if it just stops continuing to globalize, that's going to probably be inflationary. Uh, and then as it, if it actually pulls back and we actually pull some supply chains back to the developed world, that's even more inflationary. And of course, that's 
that benefits some of the workers in those countries, right? So it's, it's the whole thing is kind of based on where you are in the system, what you want out of the system. And the main takeaway, I think, is that the next 10, 20 years look very different than the past 10, 20 years. So it's a case of what is the least bad choice. Yes. Hmm. Why is Europe suffering worse than maybe the U.S.? Well, a couple issues. One is that obviously a lot of their energy is reliant on Russia. Uh, so that's, that's a big factor. And we've just had the embargo or potential embargo announced. Yes, yes. Which I've been trying to understand how do they replace those energy sources immediately. For Well, they're not going to be able to do it immediately. Yeah. It's, it's, that's the challenge. I mean, basically, you have the, the challenge between the real world moving of molecules to where they need to be and the political desire to not get them from certain sources, which is understandable. Um, mainly, the United States is more energy self-sufficient. Not completely. You know, we basically, we, we export some of our energy, we import some of our energy, but we're not like just fully reliant on importing, whereas Europe is far more reliant on importing and particularly from, from Russia. Uh, and then two, just things like, you know, political movements around decommissioning nuclear plants, things like that. Um, and so um, Europe's in a tougher spot. And then also just from a, from a central banking standpoint, the euro is a more challenging currency to manage because you have a monetary union without a fiscal union uh, in that region. Uh, whereas in the United States and in, say, Japan, or you, know, you, you have both a fiscal union and a monetary union for the most part. So how, how do they square that in, in uh, Europe? Say, you know, if the U.S. wants to print some money, for example, how do they do that in Europe? Do they have to do an equal spread of the, the printed money? How does it actually work? Well, money's created in, in the current system a couple of different ways. One is by bank, main, the main way is by banks lending. When, you, when banks lend yeah. money, they unintuitively create money into existence. That, that's basically how this works. And of course, they, they only can lend if they think they're actually not going to default on that because then they're in trouble. The other option is you can run very large fiscal deficits and have the central bank you know, create money to buy the bonds, either, either directly or if that's not allowed, they can just buy it on the secondary market. So it's like, you know, the government sells it to the public and then the central bank creates money and buys those bonds from the public. And so essentially they're buying it from the government. And what's different about, so that part's not different between the United States and, and Europe. What's different between the United States and Europe is that the United States, the different states have unified a lot of their expenditures. So military, Medicare, Social Security, these are on the federal level. So if you look at state debt as a percentage of GDP, uh, across the board, it's pretty low, especially for the major states. Right? So, for mm-hmm. example, a typical state might be under 10% debt to GDP. So most of the debt is either private markets, like mortgages, or on the federal level. There's relatively small debt on the states. Now, there are specific areas of pension problems and things like that. But, but actual like raw state debt as a percentage of GDP is low. In Europe, because a lot of those uh, you know, complicated expenditures are still on the, the country level, uh, but they don't control their own currency... Basically, they don't have their own central banks. They share the ECB. You have a problem where, you know, Italy has 150% debt to GDP, which the only one really buying Italian bonds is the ECB. You know, foreign, foreign entities don't really want to buy Italian debt. They might want to buy German debt, but they don't really want to buy Italian debt. Uh, and so you have a problem where if you have high inflation, you know, the ECB is one of the most ill-equipped to say, okay, we're going to stop doing QE. We're going to raise rates, let the chips fall where they may. Because then you can you you probably get like a eurozone breakup of some sort, right? So you have Italian, and this is what happened back in 2012 until the ECB came in. You had huge spreads blow out 
between a lot of the southern countries and the northern countries because it's just, you know, it, it's as though it's kind of like if you had U.S. states, but some of them had 150 percent debt to GDP and they're all running their own retirement systems and things like that. So it's a, it's a much more complex system to manage in Europe, both from the energy side based on, on both just physical realities as well as some of their political decisions, but then also just the complexity of, of having technically sovereign countries share the same currency. So does the UK have itself in a more advantageous position because it isn't part of the single currency? Well, yes, by not giving up its own currency, it's not in that same problem. But is it a weaker currency because it's a smaller currency? Not necessarily. I mean, some of the strongest currencies in the world have been, the, have been small ones, okay. like Switzerland, uh, Singapore. Uh, you know, one of the, over the past century, one of the very few currencies that has really kind of kept pace with the dollar has been the, the Swiss franc. And really, it would have been better than the dollar if they had not, um, you know, purposely stopped it from strengthening, right? So, so size matters in, in some ways in this context, because, for example, if you're a large market, if you're a large currency, you, have a, you, have, you can do things like increase your odds of being able to buy oil, for example, in your currency. Like, so United States can do it. China might be able to do it. Europe can do it. So the bigger the bigger currency is, the more it's widely recognized. But you can also do it by having a long track record of, of just a very strong current account surplus, very strong currency management. You can be perceived as kind of a safe haven currency. And then why has Japan weathered the storm better than, say, other countries? One is that they, they have less political polarization. Okay. Right? So they don't have the same problem with Europe where... You know, it's just like totally separate countries trying to work together with the same currency. Japan has relatively low levels of wealth concentration. They have this pretty uniform system. They have pretty low healthcare costs, despite the fact that their population's aged. Um, uh, they have a very hardworking society. Um, but they, they, they are not getting out of this unscathed. So, for example, they're a big energy importer. Uh, and so that's, that's costing them right now. And then two, because they have so much debt to GDP. Now, unlike Europe... That's all denominated in their own currency. They can they can control that. The problem is that they don't want yields to get too high because if you have 200% debt to GDP and yields go up, uh, you start to get a, a fiscal spiral. So their big problem is that they're pegging yields super low. They're doing yield curve control, which is something I, I it's a theme I've been talking mm. about for a while. They're actually doing it. They're just saying, okay, we're not going to let our 10-year government bond go above 0.25% uh, per year. Uh, and, we're, and the way they enforce that is they're willing to buy any number of those bonds at that rate. They basically have a peg. And they can enforce the peg because they can print unlimited yen to buy any bond that's issued. Um, now, the challenge there is if the market can't get the rate that it wants, it sells the currency. And so you get, we, we've had a rather sharp yen devaluation compared to the dollar and compared to a number of other currencies. Uh, and so they're facing their own challenges, for sure. Uh, but the kind of the... I would say that the the most challenging one to navigate by far is what's happening in the ECB, whereas Japan and the United States, as challenging as it is, is, is somewhat uh, easier to manage. But the, the primary issue here you're talking about is, that, is the amount of debt now in the system. Yeah, I think the two biggest issues are the debt in the system and the fact that unlike the prior decade, we're now we're in a commodity bull cycle where we don't have oversupply, we have undersupply. And so it's kind of like, we're, we're marking to market now some of this debt, right? So the whole point of sovereign reserves is that sovereign reserves like treasuries and these, and these other types of, of, of bonds, they're basically supposed to be able to buy you, you know, goods and services at a reasonable price for a long period of time, right? I mean, that's kind of, and you can just simplify it and say, buy energy at a reasonable, uh, you know, 
duration. And if that, if those reserves are no longer able to buy you, if they just buy you less and less energy every year because now there's an energy shortage, that threatens the whole system. That that's really kind of the first time you've been in this environment. Now you had a big energy bull market in the 2000s, but that was mostly from the demand side. We had a strong growth in emerging markets. Uh, we had a weaker dollar that, that kind of allowed that emerging market boom to happen. Um, and supply came online pretty quickly due, you know, uh, in different ways. And so that kind of tested the system, but it didn't break the system. Now that we have actually undersupply, this is the, probably the biggest challenge that this very debt-based system has ever faced. But they can increase supply, right? Over time, yeah. yes. Yes. Right. And why do, how do you, because what I don't understand is how do you have a sudden undersupply? Is it just because of the way the, the what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and therefore there's an undersupply in specific areas? Because there hasn't been a sudden increase in demand for energy. The population hasn't, they haven't seen a sudden massive increase in population. We haven't seen some massive economic growth. Or is it because we had a slowdown for COVID and we're essentially trying to restart markets. That's part of it. So it's a, it's a bunch of factors coming together. So price is set around the margins, right? Yeah. So it actually takes rather small differences to affect the whole environment. Right. And so going into, you know, pre-COVID, uh, you know, there the world was oversupplied with oil. It's because shale oil ramped up very quickly and investors were willing to do so unprofitably. They just kept saying drill, drill, drill. They were free cash flow negative, um, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia tried to flood the market with oil to try to kill the shale oil producers. It didn't really work. Right. Um, so basically, there's just more oil than the world knew what to do with. Prices were low. Um, and then, uh, you know, that started to get worked out, but then COVID happened. And we have, of course, a massive collapse in demand uh, with the lockdowns and things like that. Um, and then we had a sharp resurgence in, in demand. But a lot of supply, you know, some of the supply was killed during that period, right? So some of the weaker players went out, of, went out of the market. And there's also increasingly, you know, a lot of, it's, it's not really socio-politically popular to invest in hydrocarbons now, right? So a lot uh -huh. of large pools of capital divested. Uh, and then there's a big movement to shut down nuclear plants and things like that. So we're, we're undersupplied in many ways. And you had this big uh, demand resumption while supply didn't really, you know, fully catch up to the same way that demand did. And then natural gas is a, it's a, it's a less fundable market than oil. So oil, you can put, you know, you, you can move barrels around pretty readily. There are pockets where it's challenging if there's no pipelines, if it's like inland really far, you can have these weird anomalies. But for the most part, oil is a pretty global market. Natural gas is a lot harder to transport. So it's a lot less fungible. Uh, it's more right. expensive. And so even before the war, natural gas prices in Europe were spiking tremendously. Um, and, and so that was, it was a shortage. Russia was unable to supply enough, uh, compared to the demand that Europe had. Russia was still supplying contracted amounts for the most part, but Europe demand had upticked and there just wasn't really a lot of spare capacity. And it was being met by LNG, uh, from the United States and elsewhere, but there's only, that takes billions of dollars of infrastructure to build in very long amounts of time. It's a very complex process. So there's only so much LNG capacity. Um, to do that. So it's, there's an arbitrage opportunity there, but it's, it's just structurally limited. And over years and billions of dollars, you can build more. So eventually that can be, that gap can be closed, but it's a less fungible market. And then, so that's already was a challenging situation where we just under, we've not invested for years while demand slowly ticks up and, and particularly it came up rapidly after, after the, the lockdowns came out. And then when you throw the, you know, the, the curveball of 
of Russia invading Ukraine, suddenly one of the biggest oil producers, we, one is they could shut countries off. Two countries want to shut themselves off from them. Uh, and suddenly that the market got even less fungible than it was before, both for gas and then also potentially for oil. Um, and so you have both supply side problems and you have a resumption in demand uh, after. And this, you know, this is not really unique. If you go back in history, commodity cycles tend to go through these boom bust periods where, you know, prices are low, so nobody wants to invest. And eventually, kind of like with Bitcoin, where, you know, if, if it's like super low and it's all going into like hodler hands, eventually you just run out of liquidity and you get like a price spike. Uh, same thing happens in commodity markets, but it takes decades where, you know, prices are low, nobody's investing. Eventually just supply is just dwindling and demand keeps inching up and eventually you have a squeeze and prices start going up. A lot of capital comes into the space. Eventually it gets over exuberant, you overbuild and then you know, you, that's what causes the next period of low prices. And this right, is okay. generally like 15-year cycles. Yeah, because there has been talk of $300 barrels of oil. Um, I don't know if that'll be achievable. Where are we at now? Is it like 140 150 Is it higher? Last I saw it was 118 but it changes every day. Yeah, but it, um, certainly if you get to $300 for a barrel of oil, there'll be a lot of investment in that infrastructure. Yes. But that takes time. Uh, investment in... Nuclear, I mean, I've got no idea, but I can imagine it can be a decade to build a <laughs> nuclear reactor with all the uh, regulatory processes yes. to go through and the investment and the cost. So your, your, your view is this, is this could take 15 years to get us back into an energy bull cycle? I don't know about 15, but I think that this is going to be a, a, the story for the decade, that I think it's going to take a lot of new supply coming online. And it's not even just, so energy is the key area. Yeah, We're also going to need more copper and more nickel and things like that, right? So it's, it's and then, you know, energy is also used for fertilizers. Yeah. That's where it ties into the food angle. Uh, and then also anything, even even transporting food, that takes energy, right? And so uh, even making, making wind turbines, making solar panels, this is, an, uh, hydrocarbons are used to do that, right? So that, that's a way you can either burn hydrocarbons or you can take hydrocarbons and say, we're going to put them into this project that will give us more energy over, you know, decades. But it does require that upfront investment to, you know, dig, dig mills out of the ground, construct the things, you know. So I think there's got to be a lot of investment in real world goods this decade. And it's not unusual for this to happen. It's only unusual for this to happen when debt is so high. That, that's kind of where what makes this cycle you know, we have to go back to like the 40s to kind of find a similar type of environment, 1940s. Yeah, it's a, it's a super complicated problem. Um, I recently interviewed uh, somebody called Alex Epstein who wrote a book about fossil fuels and he his belief is that humans uh, flourish with an abundance of energy and we need to massively uh, overproduce in terms of energy. And he's, he, he is of the belief that we should continue to burn fossil fuels and we should mitigate the effects on the on the, the environment and uh, on the climate. I struggle with that as somebody who has researched and looked into the impact of climate change, but I also see the, the, the downstream effects of not having enough energy. But at the same time, I mean, today my brother forwarded me an article the, from India where the, the, the temperatures are so, so hot at the moment, it's having an impact on agriculture, and there's dehydrated birds dropping out of the sky. And trying to match those two problems it is super complicated feels to me like 
nuclear is a solution. And you're pro-nuclear. I believe we've had that conversation before. Yeah, for the past few years. Yeah. yeah, so it feels like that's where the investment needs to go. But there's going to be this massive impact in the short term. Um, I can only talk about things I've read in the UK or things I'm aware of. Um, people cannot afford to fill their cars up and maybe travel as much. I even saw one story, Lynn, that just didn't cross my mind. So there's a chance a bunch of swimming pools in the UK will close down because they cannot afford to heat the pools. It's too expensive. Or they have to raise their prices and people won't go swimming. Or they have to let staff go. Or they have to have the pools a bit cooler or open for less hours. It's These are these downstream effects that never even crossed my mind. And I'm sure there's hundreds of these, thousands of these. Energy is one of the few things that touches almost everything we yeah. do. I mean, basically, our, all of our economies around using energy to basically make the world more suitable for us. Um, and I, I to, like just from the math, nuclear is one of the safest and, and most abundant ways to you know have clean energy. Um, there's also solar and wind work very well in in certain types of environments. Um, I, there could be breakthroughs and things like you know, algae or things like that, just basically ways to harness energy. From, from um, algae? Algae, yeah, biofuels. Okay, yeah. okay. You can, you can say, for example, genetically modify algae to be more optimal for biofuel production, things like that. There's all sorts of long-range things. There's deep geothermal energy, right? So there's geothermal energy where you tap into, uh, say, Iceland where it's near the surface. But there's also theoretical technologies. If we get better drilling, we could, we could go down deep enough so that almost anywhere in the world you could get geothermal energy which is which is rather clean and and so there's long range things that could potentially solve this um but in the near term near term meaning a decade or more uh the world's kind of you know pretty short on hydrocarbons uh and i think that is it's a challenge because we can talk about what we want but also it's like people will literally starve if we don't as a society have enough energy and so it is it's I think people's views on energy is going to be challenged this decade. I think, you know, it's kind of these these rough times are kind of what tests different beliefs about what we want to do or where we want to go. And so uh, there, there, in some ways, there always is a trade-off between environment and abundance. Um, but there's obviously better ways. There's, there's ways to optimize that as much as possible. I mean, for example, natural gas and coal, even though they're both fossil fuels, are not the same. I mean, one is generally cleaner than the other, for example. Hmm. Um, there, there are different ways to, to optimize this over the long run. Now, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. I'm excited to announce my new sponsor, Cake Wallet, who I've recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share your important information with unnecessary third parties. And with Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. And the app is designed to make it super easy to set up your wallet and back up your private keys. Now, if you want to find out more and check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up, it is BCB Group. BCB Group provides online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a bank, and they also understand Bitcoin. And they reached out to me, so I've moved my business banking across to BCB, and I could not be happier. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. 
They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you will want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Compass Mining, but they are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of Compass and I am back mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for nine months with Compass now, and I've already mined 0.66 Bitcoin, which has paid off two of my S19s already. Now, any of you can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched their Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors like price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes Bitcoin mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Also, we have Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying right. We're hodlers. We're not sellers. I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. So all you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Are you following much about what's happening in Sri Lanka? I assume you're aware. Yeah, to some extent, basically they're having a currency crisis and an energy crisis. And that's that's an example of what can happen. It starts at the periphery, um, you know, countries that are either not economically secure, energy secure, um, and then you can have mayhem and you can have people suffer because they're not able to get the resources that they need. And generally, you know, a lot of these revolutions, the catalyst ends up being that food and fuel prices spike, right? So, you know, you have an unstable situation, but that it's good enough because people are able to get the food they need, they get the energy they need. So they're like, well, you know, I'm not going to go out in the streets, even though I don't like the situation. Uh, but then when they can't even do that anymore, they're like, I'm going out in the streets. Um, and so that's why a lot of these revolutions tend to happen in rising commodity price environments. Civil unrest. I think you said, talked about it with me before, civil unrest, and that's followed by populism. Yes. Interesting. Uh, I, I was tracking um, Sri Lanka. I think Stefan Levera shared uh, a video. I was watching a news article, and I'm pretty sure they got to the point where they, they ran out of money to secure, uh, secure their oil Purchases or they to be able to pay off their oil debt, so they they got to the point where the country had no fuel left. Yeah, they're very low on capital. That's yeah. the whole thing. If you if you don't have sufficient reserves, sufficient savings, uh, and then you you encounter a crisis, you can literally run out of things. And so we're seeing that in a number of places, uh, and and Sri Lanka is kind of on the forefront of that, unfortunately. Yeah. Did do we even know how a country? Well, you probably know. How does a country like Sri Lanka get out of this? Is it 
new loans with the with the World Bank? The I, what, do they have new agreements with the IMF? What, what happens in a situation like this? Well, yeah, you can have humanitarian organizations come in. You can have these big government types of organizations come in and do loans and things like that. Or they, they just kind of go through mayhem and if there's some pockets that are able to get capital and, and keep operating. But it's, it's a very dangerous environment. There's, there's no easy way out. If you're building up a capital base from nothing, that's very hard to do. Uh, it's just it, they basically have to bootstrap all over again, and it's it's super challenging. It's a convergence of so many bad things: <laughs> uh, high amounts of debt, um, yes. high inflation, war, energy crisis. But I'm I'm trying to understand myself: are they all related, or some? I mean, obviously, a war you you that ideally wouldn't have happened, and you know, for some of us, that was a bit of a surprise, came came out of nowhere. But that is compounding the effects of these already very difficult situations. I think a lot of them are related. Um, you know, there's that whole book, Fourth Turning. Fourth Turning, and that End of the War. And, and the reason I like that book is because I focus on the quantitative side. And so I look at the long-term debt cycle, which was a topic popularized by Ray Dalio. Yeah. And if you just look at the fourth turnings and the long-term debt cycles, it's the same cycle. Right, so one's describing the quantitative aspect of what's happening, one describing the qualitative happening. And for example, if you look at the 1930s and 40s, um, you know, after the, during the Great Depression, you had a, a collapse of the private debt bubble. Hmm. And you started to get around the world rising populism. And you started to get countries, um, you know, you, basically as the pie stopped growing, people fight harder over the remaining pie. Um, and so you had countries were doing all sorts of like uh, trade, you know, frictions with each other, trying to uh, get trade advantages over each other, making less and less free trade. Um, and you had, in, inside countries, you had rising populist movements. Um, and, and especially, obviously, became really bad in, in, in Germany and, and parts of Europe. And then you had that in Japan. And then that eventually broke out into war. And then you had this more inflation environment where all these countries were going all out with their fiscal expenditures to try to get resources and win the map, win the war. Um, and so it wasn't just like these things all randomly happened. It's like you had kind of a series of things lead into each other. And so we, I've used the 2010s and 2020s analog comparing to the 1930s and 40s because in, you know, in the 2010s or really in, you know, 2008, but for the most part, we went through it in the 2010s. We had a popping of a private debt bubble. So you had, you know, uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, you had kind of a lot of private debt, you know, get wiped out. Um, and people lost their homes, and you had this kind of stagnation environment that looked a lot like the 30s, except without a dust bowl. And you know, we did it in an era of smartphones and things like that, and we had more money printing, so it was less deflationary. But it was just kind of like this stagnation uh, with just better technology. And then the 2020s are shaping up to be a lot like the 40s, where you have you know an external catalyst comes along. In this case, a virus, and then lockdowns, and then you know the fiscal response to get to to keep people solving through that. So we print a lot of money um, after a period of having low commodity prices and underinvestment, and we're now we're kind of going into the 40s. And the one thing I hope I you know I wasn't sure we'd see some the same level of kinetic type of things we saw in the prior 40s. I wasn't trying to call for a war comparison. I was calling for a a fiscal and inflation and commodity comparison. Uh, but it is kind of inevitable that you get these types of conflicts. And so in this environment where the pie is not growing, you're more likely to get conflicts. And then those conflicts can ironically make the pie even smaller, right? Because now it's even it's less it's less efficient to move things around. And so it actually in many ways makes the crisis worse. Yeah, I, it's quite interesting with regards to what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. I've had people on the podcast to discuss this. 
and there's uh, a couple of schools of thought where you know, one school of thought is uh, uh, Russia is invading a sovereign currency and Putin has some desire to uh, uh, kind of reunite the USSR. And there's another school of thought where by its uh, NATO expansion, there's a threat to Russia. But an interesting thing that's happened with one of my friends, um, he's married to a Russian lady and he has uh, money in Russia. And he said, uh, he contacted me uh, a few weeks back, I can't remember when, he said, I need to get my money out of Russia. He was very fearful of what was going to happen to the currency. And he said, can I do this with Bitcoin? I said, well, that, that's one way. And, you know, if you want to maintain stability, then you need to convert it to Bitcoin, send it and, you know, sell it immediately. Um, and he was finding it so difficult to get the money out, he didn't. And I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. He said, uh, my money's actually worth more. Like, he had an expectation the ruble was going to, crash but actually it, it, it's not his money's worth a lot more now and i just wondered what is there a third school of thought is this another strategic move to make uh, uh the russian currency stronger or is this just some weird uh, effect that nobody expected i think a lot of it's tied into the energy right so if you if you have a country that doesn't export enough uh-huh. then no amount of capital controls can really maintain the value of that currency it's just going to collapse mm-hmm. um Whereas if you have a country that exports things that the world needs, like Russia, they have a, a big chunk of not just energy, but also nickel, uh, wheat, um, fertilizer. Um, they have a big chunk of the resources that the world needs. So the world needs it and the world sanctioned them. So they have less split import now, but their exports are still desired and the prices of those exports went up. So the dollar value of their exports is, is higher. So actually their current account surplus, their trade surplus spiked because you, you simultaneously reduce their imports and in, increase their exports uh, value-wise. Um, and so you have this, it's almost like a short squeeze where it's, it's real, but it's also partially affected by these sanctions and capital controls and things like that. And it kind of comes down to the fact that at the end of the day, currency is a claim on the resources of that country. Yeah. And Russia does have a lot of resources. And resources doesn't just mean natural resources, it also means labor resources and infrastructure resources. In Russia's case, a lot of it's natural resources. Um, and so they have cards to play because you know Europe can say what they want and then Russia can say, okay, we're gonna shut your gas off and unless you pay in unless you, you know, do our terms. And so there's this very challenging, it's you know, it's it's not a an easy playing field. The, the West has advantages. And but Russia also has key resources, and you know I don't go into the whole political thing. I've, I've, I'm not in favor of war. I'm not in favor of what Russia's doing here at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know if I, uh, I'm very supportive of the people in Ukraine. And one of the one of the things that the Human Rights Foundation we had activists there from Ukraine and Russia. There are people there that were say Putin oppositionists. They're they're pro. They're they're in favor of democracy in Russia. Like real democracy, not like you know, fake democracy. <laughs> yeah. Like not where journalists and political opponents get jailed and killed and things like that. Bullets in the head and fall off balconies. And yeah. Was it uh, Navalny? Is it nine years he's just been sentenced? Yeah. 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 Someone from his organization was at the the, the, the Freedom Forum. I met yeah. her. And so, you know, it's not really, it doesn't have to be about the people. It's about regimes playing chess with their people's lives. And that's, and especially what Russia's doing. You know, it's a terrible situation for for human rights in general. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like I don't I don't know how this ends. It feels it feels like it's all down to some or a few a small number of people's egos. That that's it. All thing comes down to things like that. And I mean, 
And I know people will push back and say, because the United States, we, we've done a lot of atrocities around the world too. When you have these centralized areas of power, they go out and they, they, you know, they can exert their will on, on other countries. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate. The British too. We yeah, have a, British have done it. a long history. People remind me. Um, okay, let's uh, get more a bit back to more kind of like domestic issues because I, I think people want to understand this because there is a domestic issue. There's been a lot more talk of recession. Again, I've seen it more in the UK press recently because I've been back in the UK. Um, the As I understand it, the definition of a, a recession is, is it two quarters of negative growth or is it two months? I can remember. There are a couple different definitions. Yeah. One of them is two negative quarters. Yeah. Another one is generally just a contraction in economic activity over a prolonged period of time. So... Um, there's different organizations in different areas that are kind of responsible for like calling a recession. The thing is, they don't call it till hindsight, mm-hmm. right? They don't say, okay, we're entering a recession in real time. Uh, often they'll, you know, months later, they'll go back and say, oh, that's when the recession started, right? And right. so generally the, the, the two quarters is like the, the one that's referenced the most, but there's no, there's no, you know, official global definition of a recession. But generally speaking, it, yeah. it is a drop on economic output. And we see that with... Uh, the UK, we have a real cost of living crisis at the moment. I think 20% of the population is in fuel poverty, which means they cannot afford to pay their fuel bills. Um, we know there's a, a massive increase in costs in shopping. I mean, uh, I saw one thing that the, the budget pastors are now up 50% in price. But there's a massive increase, 10 15%, and a wide range of things that's really hurting people's ability to feed their children. We see stories of families skipping meals. There's all these different stories of things that people are doing. Even the radio shows or the TV shows and newspapers are running articles about how to survive a cost of living crisis, how to manage your budget. But this cost of living crisis, I guess, the the impact of this is people have less money to spend on other things. So there will be a downstream effect on maybe retail environments or people going to concerts or all these things, which this is what leads to a recession. Yeah, well, there's multiple ways you can get to a recession. Yeah. And one of them is certainly when energy and commodity prices take up a increasing proportion of the economy. Because yeah. basically mandatory spending pushes away, as you described, discretionary. Uh, discretionary spending. And so, you know, humans are are happier and more flourishing when you have to spend very little amount of your money on, you know, the necessities of life and you can spend more on your uh, on travel and, and luxuries and optionality. Uh, but when those necessities increase in cost um, for one reason or another, uh, that that is a common trigger for a recession. Another one is the is that the central banks and the fiscal force are trying to push back on inflation. As I described, they can't just create more oil fields, um, but so what they can try to do is reduce demand for things. So they can kind of, in their vision, the best is to have like a very mild recession. Um, but it's, you know, they call it a, a soft landing. How do, how do they do that, though? Well, historically, they don't, right? It's one of those things, they always want a soft landing, and then they don't get a soft landing, and then they get a hard landing, and then they have to reverse course. It, it's very unusual. It, it's rather unusual to get a soft landing. I mean, technically, for example, in the, in the 2000s, after the dot-com bubble, uh, in the U.S. at least, you had a relatively soft recession. It wasn't a particularly severe one, but that was a very different cause. Hmm. Um, and so y- there are recessions that are worse than others. So they're not delusional in thinking that, you, you know, it did, not everything is like a, a giant crisis, but, you know, it's one of those things where, like, analyst Luke Groman would say, we no longer have a dial, we have like an off and on switch, and they still think it's a dial. And But because there's so much debt in the system, 
you know, that dial starts to become like a switch. It's either you're either growing your, or you're kind of collapsing because there's just so much debt that if you're not growing, you're, you know, you're falling apart pretty quickly. But how do they centrally drive a reduction in demand? So one thing that they can do is they can tighten monetary policy to make it harder to get a loan. Oh, okay. So they can, they can slow down housing activity. Uh, and that, that's, that's a big factor for a lot of economies. Um, and then especially like junk debt has harder getting financing. Uh, and then they can also combine that with the, the fiscal side can stop doing stimulus, things like that. They could raise taxes, which they're not doing because that's politically unpopular, but they, when they're not sending out stimulus checks, many cases right now. Well, they're talking about that in the UK in one way. So the uh, the energy uh, bills, is, uh, we talked about this previously. Um, I saw a massive increase, like a nearly 300% increase in my energy bills. Um, and, you know, it's a material difference. You know, you, you see it in, in the bills and you see, and, and you, you know, extrapolate that out for the year and realize how much you're going to spend on gas and electric. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to cover that, but I know there's other people who are less fortunate. And so the government recently, Danny, can you just double check this? But I think they're talking about sending out, I don't think sending checks out there, they're everybody in the country, they're going to offer something like £400 uh, off their energy bills in October or some, something like yeah, that. Yeah, £400, uh, £400 energy bill discount in October. Yeah, so I was trying to work this out in my head because it says every household in the is it every household in the country every household yeah so i was thinking well first of all i don't need this so why why do this and maybe half the country doesn't need this but is the cost of trying to means test it too expensive well it also says that people on benefits get an additional 650 pounds okay but there's those on benefits and, and it depends which benefits i guess they're on but what i'm saying is i do not need this and i know a lot of people who don't need this so what that means is they could for Oh, two, they have two other options. They could, for some people, maybe do it for two months, or for some, uh, or just the cost of doing this is lower to the government. There's another point I'm going to come to on windfall taxes. But um, so I was trying to think about it like that, and I was also trying to think, well, why 400 pound discount in October? Because really, most people, it's about 100 pound a month might make that big difference if they're controlling it. Why? Why just do it as a lump in one month? Is it because it's getting colder, so energy prices will go up? Yeah, but I don't think some people's bills are going. Energy bills are going to go up four hundred pounds. But even if it is, what about October? Uh, Sorry, what about November? What about December? What about January? What about February? They're all cold months in the UK. Every single one of them. So I didn't understand one month. Does it say how much the cost is there for the entire program? I'll have a look. I mean, this is this is essentially a stimulus check of sorts. Broadly speaking, I think we're going to see that quite a bit this decade. Right. We've already seen it, as you point out, in Europe in some places. Um, and I think we're going to see it more broadly where the stimulus checks we saw before were like these broad ones where you could, you could take your, your check and buy Dogecoin with it. Yeah. I don't recommend, but people did. right? And I think the types of stimulus we're going to see going forward is um, energy and food subsidies. Um, and so that, that can uh, alleviate the hardship for, for uh, the people that need it the most. Um, but it also does contribute to ongoing stagflation and currency devaluation, right? So the, at the end of the day, the, the key thing they have to do is figure out how to get more energy and more commodities supply to come online. And these other attempts, I think because of how much debt's in the system, they can't, they basically just can't let just recessions happen for prolonged periods of time. Like mm. If you look at every recession, 
there's always these stimulus effects. And that's, and then, you know, in a, in a healthy environment, like let's say you had a low debt system, recessions can just kind of work themselves out, right? You, just, you eventually clear out the malinvestment and then the cycle starts anew with, with cap, you know, enterprising individuals come in with their capital and they kickstart the next investment cycle and the next consumption cycle. But because there's so much debt in the system, it's like, the way I would describe it is like, if you have this metic- like a meticulously garden that you've, like, you, you've, you've elaborately uh, like designed, if you let that go, it starts to unravel pretty quickly. It's not just like a healthy, balanced forest, for example. Sounds like and, my garden. <laughs> so our, our economy is like this meticulous garden that if they stop interfering with it, it starts to get messy pretty quickly. And so I think what we're going to see, we're going to see some level of economic deceleration or outright recessions. And then we're probably going to see some increasing usage of these kind of targeted stimulus uh, for for kind of mani- things that people have no choice but to, to spend on. And then how is that financed? If it's financed by printing more money, we increase the money supply, yeah. which drives inflation, which yes. which you know, feels to me like yeah. its own kind of death spiral. But did they, they're talking about financing it through a windfall tax on the energy companies, right? Yes. Now, and I think they talked about raising like 15 billion for this, but, but windfall taxes themselves... To me, they seem a little bit targeted, arbitrary, and in a free market unfair. The the politicians' rhetoric is, well, we're we have an energy crisis, but these uh, uh, oil and gas companies are making record profits. Um, what, what does it say? Uh, oil and gas firms will be hit with a twenty five percent windfall tax. Yeah, but what is like the historical background to windfall taxes? And and it to me, it just seems. Is that, I guess, politically popular because it's just targeting a group that is demonized. But what is the impact on the companies themselves? Is it just, okay, we make 25% less profit this year? Also, the history of it is generally that whenever the state needs funds, especially more so than other times, uh, they will go after demonized groups okay. to, to try to get them. Um, the challenge here is that uh, energy companies made very little money the past decade, mm-hmm. um, especially the past five years. Uh, let's use North America uh, shale, for example. Um, most of them were free cash flow negative during that period. They basically were, were, were producing, they were investing a lot and not making money for it. Now, we didn't do reverse windfall taxes. We didn't give them money. Yeah, of course. But now, due to like this, the opposite happening, they said, okay, we're going to stop doing that. We're going to stop plowing money into unprofitable projects. Uh, we're going to be more capital disciplined. That's what our shareholders want. And so you get this spike in profitability. But that comes after a long stretch of unusually low profitability. And if you look at, say, stock indices, energy companies have been utterly terrible performers over, say, a 10-year period compared to broad equity indices. And now they're finally getting the spike. And then you come in and say, well, now you're the ones benefiting this. We're going we're gonna to take that away. And take your money. And... You know, so in the in the near term, you say, okay, it makes sense. So you take the chunk of that, you give it to people. The the challenge is, the downstream effects is, does that affect that company's decision to invest in more energy uh, in your jurisdiction? Do they do they want to bring more energy to market, or, you know, do they want to maybe not put a lot of new capital in that industry because they they say, okay, it's kind of like how if you, if there's say there's two developing countries, one of them is is known for respecting property rights. And one of them, every 10 years, has a revolution and they take all the assets. Okay. 
if you're a foreign entity, then you have capital and you have expertise and you want to go, say, develop an oil field, you're going to pick the the one that you have a high probability assessment that they're going to respect that you own the assets and mm-hmm. you can profit from them. You're not going to put it in the one where you don't know the future of those assets. And so, for example, if there's like this tendency towards windfall taxes, the risk is that a company might say, well, if this is going to keep happening, maybe we should just not really keep investing in the energy space. Maybe we should go elsewhere. Maybe investors will say, even though a company might want to keep investing in the energy space, that's what they do. Outside investors might say, I'm not going to keep investing there because it's just going to keep getting windfalled. So I'll invest elsewhere. And so some of these things can be potentially short-sighted. Where the ultimate goal in the long run, the, the thing that actually fixes this, is to bring more uh, supply online. And ideally, the, the cleanest and longest, longest lasting. So, you know, there's the, in the near term, you just need more supply. Long term, you want the cleanest, best supply to come online. Um, and of course, there's, there's always efficiencies you can do. You can incentivize people to make their homes more energy efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's ways to reduce kind of arbitrary energy loss. None of these things we've talked about seem to be solving the problem of the amount of debt in the system. Um, historically, with the um, I've watched the Ray Dalio video on the short and long-term debt cycle. Historically, how does how does the debt get removed from the system in the long-term debt cycle? Is there like debt jubilees? Is there defaults? How does that tend to happen? So historically, when debt as as a share of the economy is this big it defaults in one way or another. Right. It could be outright defaults. And that's common, for example, in a developed country where they owe dollars, they can't print dollars, and they just say, We're, we, can't, we can't pay the debts. So, so that's probably what will happen in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then in developing countries, it's, it generally happens instead through inflation, where they say... Developed. Developed countries. Yeah, yes. sorry, I thought you said developed. Oh, developed countries. Yeah. Uh, where they say, okay, we can, we're going to pay the debt, we, you know, because the, the the it's denominated in a currency we can print, so we're not going to default, um, but we're just going to print a lot of money, and we're going to pay those debts. So you're going to get every dollar or every euro or every pound you're owed. Yeah, it's just going to be worth. It's just going to be worth, you know, maybe <laughs> half as much as it was yeah. when you bought that security. Uh, and so that that's I think what we're going to see is that inflation is going to be higher than interest rates on average, for a prolonged period of time. Now, you could get a deflationary shock like you had in 2020. You can get these brief moments where that's not true, but I think in general, you know, we've already been in a period where inflation's above interest rates, and I think that's going to continue for, for quite a while. And, and what are you predicting with interest rates? I know that's difficult, but uh, the UK, where, what was it, 9%, it's predicted to go up to 10%. The US is 8.3, I think. Eurozone was 8.1 today, I think. I mean, they're all around about that. Uh, do you think these will settle down at like 5 6%? Do you think we could go up to 12 to 15 I know there's real-world figures, but we can only really benchmark what we actually know. Um, uh, do you think we could stay around 8% and it could be for years? Like, This partially depends on human decisions, which is what makes it challenging, right? Okay. So that giving an answer to that partially depends on what is Putin going to do? Yes. What's Europe going to do in response to Putin? What's the US going to do? Um, so in general, I think we're say, in the U.S., potentially reaching a, a plateau for a period of time where due to base effects, you can kind of level off a little bit. But I think the underlying problem is still unresolved, that there's just not enough energy and certain commodities available. Uh, and, and Europe's got it the worst, but it's, it's, it's global because commodities are a global market. Um, and so my expectation is that if you look back at the 40s and the 70s, you had very high inflation, but it wasn't a straight line. You had periods of, of pushback. 
Okay. Uh, and so I think right now we're kind of in a period of pushback. Um, and it's, it's, it's challenging to say how successful it's going to be because parts depends on understanding the breaking point when people riot, understanding, you know, is it going to be any sort of de-escalation in, in, in this war or no? Um, so those are variables that can, that can influence it. So in general, I am positioned towards uh, an inflationary outcome without trying to predict exactly what level inflation is going to be, especially because as you pointed out, there's, there's real numbers, you know, it, it's, 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 there's different pockets of inflation. So I think that looking back at the end of this decade, energy prices are going to be much higher in dollar, euro, pound, yen terms than they are right now. But I think it's not going to be a straight line. And I think it, it was uh, a few shows ago, you said to me, you think the story of the next decade is inflation. So it's clearly not going to be a short-term uh, solution. But I assume at some point, when things start to level off, it will become a good time to start investing in certain areas. Like you as an investor, you know, what kind of time horizon, what kind of things are you looking at? It's important to have some dry powder ready. Yeah, so, I, so I'm rather defensive as central banks are trying to push back a little bit. They're trying to suck liquidity out of the mm -hmm. market. But I'm still, majority of my assets are in these long-term hard assets. You know, things like energy producers, pipelines, profitable companies producing real things, Bitcoin, some gold, uh, you know, different types of commodity exposures, basically real-world exposures, real estate. Um, uh, and so basically my approach is to have this kind of diversified set of real assets as well as some cash for liquidity to rebalance into any sort of you know, liquidity shocks we get, things like that, kind of, kind of take advantage of that counter-cyclical approach. Uh, so when people buy high and, and, and sell low, I try to just tweak it a little bit and do the opposite. But I'm not like making, I'm not, tra I'm not actively trading the market too aggressively, just kind of a small dial that I kind of lean in when things get a little cheaper and I kind of back off a little bit when things get a little bit euphoric. But, but those hard assets, property, gold, Bitcoin, but also energy companies, because I think uh, based on everything you said, um, you're assuming there's going to be some significant investment in energy production somewhere. We're seeing it. We're seeing it to some extent. I mean, okay. we're seeing we're seeing more interest in the space. But I think I think a lot of the market is still thinking this is transitory, hmm. and they're also concerned about about you know the the what percentage of the profits they'll be able to keep and things like that. And so we're not seeing this massive ramp up in capex. We are seeing an interest in capex. And then ironically, some of the supply chain things can feed into that. I mean, some of the materials they need to do energy capex are actually held up from logistics problems, right? So it kind of all ties into each other. But I think that this is a, a multi-year process to realign supply chain to some extent, as well as bring more and, and, and more types of energy to market. I think this is a... It, generally, it, so historically, these commodity cycles are these five to 10 year cycles. I mean, they, they take quite a bit of time and capital to ramp up. Um, and I don't really see this one being any different. And I'm kind of monitoring as we're seeing high energy prices, I'm seeing is, is tons of more CapEx flooding into the market? Not really. We're seeing an uptick, but we're not, we're at no, kind of in no way of measuring. Are we seeing like a massive glut of oil coming anytime soon? And, and what about what's happening with rates? Because I know it's uh, very difficult for the central banks to raise rates at the moment, but at some point, uh, with regards to curb and inflation, you know that that is one of the weapons they have. I think rates went up slightly in the UK again recently. Uh, do you think there's a chance that rates will go up significantly, or do you just think it's just not palatable? 
So I think that they're going to try to raise rates until something breaks. Okay. So in the 70s, they were able to raise rates because debt as a percentage of GDP was low. Okay. You could put rates into double digits and that interest expense was still relatively small. I mean, it, it put the economies into a recession, but it didn't put you into a depression. Okay. Whereas in the 40s, when you have sovereign debt's 100% debt GDP, and it's even worse now because you have all this private debt, you know, if, if mortgage rates are 10, 50%, if, if treasury debt is, is you know, 10, 50%, everything, everybody's insolvent. Everybody's insolvent. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think they're going to be able to get to positive real rates, meaning rates that are higher than inflation levels. They're certainly trying to uptick them. Uh, but of course, they're doing it rather slowly. I mean, we're sitting here with, as you said, like 8% inflation and they're like, okay, 50 basis points here, 50 basis points here, which is funny because that's actually the fastest they've done it in, in 20 years. You know, in the U.S., we, we haven't had 50 basis point hikes for like 20 years. Um, but it's it's also woefully in, insufficient. And so I don't think, basically, I think that I, regardless of what they do with rates, that's not what solves this. What solves this is bringing more energy abundance and commodity abundance to markets. Uh, and in the meantime, I think they're going to try to protect their currencies until you start to get outright recession or you get um, credit market freeze or you get sovereign bond markets get illiquid and messy. Right, so in, in the United States, that could mean that, you know, whenever you see the, the dollar gets too strong, foreign sector doesn't buy a lot of treasuries, banks already are stuffed full of treasuries. Who's the marginal buyer of treasuries? Uh, so you get less liquidity in the market; it gets messier. And then, as I said, with Europe, I mean, who who wants to buy Italian sovereign debt right Not now? Me. Who wants to buy that and hold that for ten years? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. who wants to buy Japanese government bonds at zero point two five percent? For ten years, when they have two hundred some percent debt to GDP, I'd rather buy Bitcoin for ten years. Yeah. Okay, amazing, really, really helpful. Um, uh, what are you optimistic about, Lynn? Energy, energy, energy investments. Okay. Uh, Bitcoin, long term. Um, good real estate, healthcare, um, healthcare stocks, things like that. I, I think that there are. Why? Because you think we're going to get stressed and sick and beaten garbage. It's just an era that I think is profitable and that is, you know, unfortunately it's, you know, they they have a lot of ways to get a lot of money. But is, is it something that gen- generally tends to be more profitable during economic difficulty? Because I know, for example, during recessions, it's good to invest in dominoes. <laughs> well, it's one of the, so healthcare is one of those like mandatory expenditures where people are not going to cut down on their, on their healthcare as much as they're going to cut down on their retail spending when energy prices get high. So I, I'm rather defensively positioned. Um, when we look at long term, I'm, 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 interest, I'm, you know, optimistic on just human ingenuity, right? So I, I think we're going through a quote unquote fourth turning. So a, 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 a time period where we're examining our, our existing institutions. We have we have decreasing levels of trust in them, whether it's governments, whether it's media, whether it's corporations, whether it's, it's basically the, the things that have been built over the past 50, 100 years. Um, and wanted to build new institutions. And that transition is always very messy. And sometimes it turns out very poorly. Sometimes it, sometimes you get a worse next state than, than the prior state. You could build, you could, you, you could have the wrong sorts of ideas of what, why those institutions went wrong and then build even worse ones. That's, that's kind of what you had in, in, say, some of the prior cycle. Uh, that's, that's part of what led to the world wars. Um, on the other hand, you can tear them down and, and rebuild better institutions. And so my, my always hope is that we, you know, actually identify the problems and then, you know, get through the difficult period and then build out better institutions going forward and, and better technologies and better ways of doing things. Amazing. Just before we close out, um, 
you're expecting the next 10 years to be bullish for commodities, but what about equities? I think it depends where you look. Um, like I said, I think that there, there are equities linked to commodities that are attractive. Uh, I think there are areas like in healthcare and things like that that can hold up pretty well. Um, I think that there are regions uh, in, say, Latin America or Southeast Asia where their equities can do pretty well. Um, and then I think, you know, you can eventually have more and more Bitcoin-related equities. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now, they're a private market, but they could become public. Um, so I, I think there, there are certainly pockets of equities that can, that can do pretty well. Generally, during rising commodity environments, uh, a lot of the, the equities that benefit from disinflation, so a lot of the tech stocks, a lot of the very growth-oriented things, those are the ones that kind of suffer and stagnate. It doesn't mean their underlying assets do poorly. It just means they might have been so overpriced that their stock price can kind of chop along or go down, even as their underlying business does okay. And I think that's kind of the environment we're in where Adobe is going to keep doing great in terms of, say, selling software, but maybe their high price point got ahead of itself. And that's not even the most extreme example. There, and that's, again, because there's just too much credit in the system. Well, there's too much credit in the system. And also, when commodity prices are very low, we tend to, and the interest rates are very low, we price equities very high. Because, for example, if, if my alternative is I can buy a 10-year treasury and get 1% interest rate, I might be willing to accept equity risk if I expect 5% returns on average over the next 10 years. Right? I'm getting 4% better than the treasury. But if inflation is high and treasury yields are 3 4%, uh, I might want 8 9 10% equity returns. And so I have to pay a lower price on, on the same equity in order to get those higher forward returns. And so... That's generally when you get that kind of more inflationary, higher rates, higher commodity price environment, you get margin pressure on companies and you also generally get lower valuations on companies. And that's why that transition from higher margin to lower margin uh, and higher valuation to lower valuation can mean, you know, stagnant, choppy, sideways stock markets, sometimes down, sometimes up, but not very much, uh, even as the underlying products and services are, of course, still growing and useful. Well, thank you. And anyone listening, even though you hate me saying this every time, go and subscribe to Lynn's newsletter because it's amazing and very helpful. And I read it every month. Uh, Lynn, thank you. This is amazing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, then please head over to the What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.